466. Three, two, one. All right, so uh, welcome to podcast number two, sponsored by James Gilly. Today, we've taken a more interesting approach to this podcast series. It's kind of like a drunk history style uh, thing, and um, we've had a couple brews. So um, last time we spoke about NATO and how certain members of NATO are starting to question their allegiances to, to other NATO members. And uh, specifically, we're talking about regions like uh, what's going on in Ukraine and what is going on in the Middle East. So uh, do you guys have any uh, comments to start off with? Or uh, do you guys basically want to get to the bread and butter of what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, I do have some things I'd like to say to start off. Number one, I'm close enough to the mic. Number two, you know, with the whole thing over there happening with, between NATO and, and the rest of the world, it seems that uh, things have um, really intensified. I feel like there's some things that have gone on since our last podcast that I can't wait to talk about because, you know, they're getting a little spicy over there. Yeah, spicy is, yeah, spicy is one way of putting it. And uh, Zach, do you have any opening comments that are so enlightening? <laughs> Let's get to it. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. I don't know what we're saying right now. <laughs> okay, so um, recently we've uh, seen a couple of interesting stories come out in the news. So the first weapons are supposed to be shipped to Ukraine soon. Uh, the president of Ukraine, uh, President Por- Petro Poroshenko, guaranteed that uh, weapons deals have already been made between the U.S. and Ukraine, and uh, the first weapons are going to be shipped within a week. And then you heard representatives of the U.S. come forth and say that nothing's definite yet, that they haven't reached an agreement. But um, there's definitely some interesting dynamics there. What, what, what do you think are some of the president's motivations for making that sort of claim uh, prematurely? I think his main motivator is because it kind of locks the U.S. into a position of sending the, or sending the weapons, because... There's been all the, right now there's all the conflict with the interference in the U.S. election by Russia. So Russia's on bad terms with a lot of people at the moment. So this was kind of his opportunity to pounce on that fear and the anger that a lot of people are feeling and to try to get a commitment from the weapons because they committed to it in December, but nothing's happened yet. Russia and Ukraine have had a long history, correct? Yeah. History hasn't necessarily been too great. The reason that Ukraine is coming out, they understand that Ukraine by itself cannot rival Russia. Much like homeboy over here said, by 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 announcing this, the United States almost it it has it almost puts it like the United States is in their corner, like in a boxing match. So it's almost try to maybe a scare tactic or or so they can have like you know a few extra you know coins in their pocket whenever they're they're facing Russia. Maybe give Russia a little bit more incentive to not press their luck in the Ukraine area. They're doing this in, in order like more like a scare tactic. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. Okay, I want to address something, Zach. So you said that Petro Poroshenko might be trying to secure commitment from the West for these weapons. But it sounds like, to me, he feels pretty confident in the West's commitment already and that he's announcing that to the world to sort of, I guess, show off or or, um, suggest that the West is now actively fighting or actively supporting the Ukrainian army so that they may be able to reclaim the Donbass region like they've been planning to. I would say I I do agree that he's, he's still trying to solicit a response from the West by using that show of confidence. Since nothing is happening, um, Ukraine doesn't necessarily have tons of political power in the international community. So making the U.S. publicly respond. You think he's trying to make the U.S. public publicly announce their uh, commitment to Ukraine? You think that <laughs> he's trying to bring the U.S.'s commitment to Ukraine into the public light yes, and show because, what's going on. Right now, 
that, like I said, it, it's been since December of 2017, and we made this, the UN and the US made this commitment to send weapons to Ukraine, and Ukraine's been left hanging right now. Um, there are people dying every day. In the past week, there's been 300 mortar shells sent over the border by Russian-backed um, fighters, and Ukraine is getting tired of that. They're going antsy, and they need some sort of response. So one, this this makes the U.S. publicly respond. So when the U.S. publicly responds, it has it now has like a new level of responsibility, whereas before, if it was just under more private terms, this now brings it back into the light of the general population. So the population helps to hold the government accountable. And also, it's a reminder to Russia that they do have this agreement with the U.S. and they do have the U.N. is sending over peacekeepers. So it's a reminder to Russia they do have supporters and this is going to be happening. So it's kind of a warning for them to start moving out. What do you think, Austin? I think it's pretty simple. You've got Russia. You've got these surrounding countries. Russia and these surrounding countries don't necessarily agree too much. You don't see the United States over here interfering, giving, giving you know, advanced weapons to China and their border with Russia. Do you think China needs advanced weapons? No, they've got a shit ton. Excuse my French. A, a, a lot of people. They got more people than we do bullets. All my, all my thing I'm saying is, is that <clears throat> the United States is involved with a lot of neighboring countries of Russia. The United States and NATO. This is why Putin and the rest of Russia they're in, they're in, they're in a hot mess. This is why they're upset. It's because of the United States and their allies, their involvement with countries around around Russia. They see it as a as a as a threat to Russian security. So that is why they're they're trying they're trying whatever they can to make sure that that does not happen. They're trying they're they're losing their influence in their region, and that's a big scare for Russia. Okay, but as I was saying, I want to keep the to- topic on Petro Poroshenko and. What sort of benefit would he have of announcing these weapon sales early? And why would the U.S. sort of backtrack on it? Why would they announce that nothing's really definite yet? Why do they want to hide this? What, what, what's the incentive here? What does that mean on the, in, to the international arena? The United States doesn't want – the United States and Russia's relationship is, is the lowest – is probably the low, one of the – closest to the lowest it's been since the Cold War. They don't want to push that any farther. Pushing it any farther could lead to, to either side – Doing something that could that could have a, a very large and long chain reaction. <clears throat> Both countries have already came out and said that their response to an attack with nuclear warfare doesn't necessarily have to be a response to a nuclear attack. If that makes sense, just because one just because one country doesn't use nuclear warfare doesn't mean they won't retaliate using nukes. So that means tensions are pretty high. They're in rough water. As when did they say this? A couple of weeks. I think it was like a, a little over a week ago. They came out in um, on the Politico news. <clears throat> as long um, as long as it. <clears throat> Russia's Russia Putin's Russian representative said that if 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 they deemed that the response required that the attack required a nuclear response they would even if the nuclear even if the response wasn't nukes, nuclear warfare towards it. Okay. So that 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 kind of describes the relationship between Russia and, and the United States right there. Mm-hmm. That would be that's that's a pretty you know solid you know solid reason that I would that I would say why you know the United States might want to keep this on the down low. The Ukraine on the other hand they're in constant turmoil, like Zach said, constant threat, they're having constant violence supported by by Russia. So anything that they can say or do to combat that or try to deter more violence, they're going to say. Well, I mean... I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I don't think that hiding that kind of information from the public is going to determine how much violence there is. I feel like that sort of... You're talking about the United States? Yeah. Like, why would they backtrack on that? Why would they... 
deny that anything was official yet. Right now, the United States and Russia are not in a direct conflict. Yeah, and you know that, so that's common knowledge. That is common knowledge. Yeah, so everybody knows that already. So what's the risk of everybody knowing? It could lead to more of a direct conflict between Russia and the United States. Russia, well, I, I, the, United I mean, States and, the United States and NATO allies are already practicing and are already drilling together. And is, is knowing what's already apparent really going to affect whether the conflict is more direct or not? It, well, apparently it wasn't necessarily – It would, apparently it's not as, as apparent to people that the United States is selling you know, weapons to Ukraine. I mean – it was in the I news. I think it would affect Russian relationship with the United States specifically because it's already been apparent to Russia. Russia already knew about it, and they already were upset about it back in December when the information first came out. So this isn't new news that would in any way reshape their relationship. It's That's why I go back <clears> to this is like the only reason this does anything is it draws – it brings it back into the reminder of the public and the population, which is where the people who hold the government accountable in the Western hemisphere. If yeah. So, to, oh, okay. So that's a that's an interesting dynamic. So, you, are you suggesting that the government doesn't want to be held accountable for their actions in Eastern Europe, and they don't want the public to scrutinize their methods of diplomacy? Real quick, let me backtrack like two steps <clears throat> before we we hit on the topic of of um, political ideals, which is all screwed up, if you ask me. But, anyways, um, no country's going to do anything without the support from. From other countries or or popular from from people from their people. Are you sure about that? Okay, let me rephrase that. No country is going to successfully do something without the support of their people. Russia is not going. Russia might have known. Say they did know. They knew that that there's a deal going on between you know the Ukraine and and the United States. Did everybody else know? I mean, they already knew we were sending them Humvees. For what reason? To supply the Ukrainian army with. Additional resource. Those are humanitarian efforts. That's what they. That's how they titled it. You, there's no. Well, like, they, no, they, no they, they titled it non-lethal aid. Exactly. Okay, non-lethal aid. Once humanitarian aid, kind of the similar. Well, not really. I mean, when you think humanitarian aid, you're talking about taking care of refugees. I'm thinking. I'm talking about using you know trucks to supply you know to bring you know food and water to people that kind of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Non-lethal. Let's just go off the non-lethal aid. Okay. What is non-lethal about about the weapons that they're trying to send now? Well, they're trying to send more lethal weapons. They're exactly. Trying, they're trying to send anti-tank weapons. Exactly. Um, I believe artillery. Exactly. Maybe artillery. No, not artillery. They're talking about tow missiles, uh, so small arms. You would agree that it's lethal weapon. Well, yeah, it's definitely lethal weapons. As opposed to the Humvees that were non-lethal weapons in the past. Anti-aircraft weapons. So you would agree that... The ones now, they're more lethal than the, than the ones in the past. Well, yeah, but they're under the Obama administration, we were only sending unarmed Humvees that needed to be armed in Ukraine. By Ukrainian, by the Ukrainian government. Yeah, but under Donald Trump's administration, he has made an agreement to start sending lethal aid over there. And, and that's, that, where the problem, that's where the problem is. That's why the public, not they don't, they would necessarily want to, to just share this, this knowledge, this common knowledge with any and everyone who has two, you know, two ears that can hear. Well, the Obama administration, the Obama administration didn't want to send lethal weapons because he, they were afraid of an escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Russia. Whereas Trump now has motivation to send these weapons because he has something to prove. He needs to prove his stance on Russia because so many people are doubting it right now with all the allegations about collusion with Russia. Trump ha Trump needs to stand firm against Russia because he, he just has to prove himself. Wait, so do you think he has something to prove? Yes, definitely. Do you, I mean, do you think it's possible that he could have colluded with Russia? 
I think it is possible, but and but regardless of whether or not it's possible, half I mean over half, half the country thinks that it is possible or that there's at least some collusion there. So he needs to try to get whatever support he can and to try to dissuade the this argument and investigation going on against him. Okay, but let's bring let's bring this back to the class. What is this? So we're we're talking about an international scandal now. We started off with a international conflict, and then we worked up to a a political scandal. So what do you think this means for international conflict? I mean, conflict is changing, it seems. It seems that small, uh, you know, politics and warfare seem to go hand in hand, but warfare seems to be fought on a different scale. It's like, you know, the way the way Russia really supplied the rebels and, and supported their offensives, um, they sent in special forces and they sent in their armies without patches on their uniforms. I mean, they could say all day that there's no proof that it's Russian soldiers, but they came from Russia wearing the same camouflage as the Russian military without patches, but using the same vehicles as the Russian military. And they simply marched across the border and nobody shot at them because they knew it was Russia. So, I mean, warfare has changed. It's no longer just so blatantly outright or maybe people are denying it they're denying that it's true to avoid open conflict because people are always like oh where's your proof where's your proof but like let's get real if it comes from the russian border and it looks like a russian it is a russian it's a russian it walks like a russian it talks like a russian it's probably russian it's because public opinion on the the matter of war has changed mm-hmm. well with 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 the never actually fully supported the war i mean it, in World War II or, or the Vietnam War or any war throughout history. The they, yeah, technically. Well, actually never war declared. Well, with any of those large conflicts or war, they never actually had large public support unless you, until after like Pearl Harbor and World War II. But for the most part, they didn't have public support during war. So what's changed now is the international dynamics. Like countries are heavily intertwined I, I in di- treaties. I disagree. I disagree with that. Uh, um, public, public opinion on war throughout history – Yes, you've had some times where maybe like Vietnam, where people have been kind of <clears throat> borderline. Some people, a lot of people were against it. But <clears throat> think about think about 9-11, the Twin Towers. There was a lot of angry people in the United States who, who I know a lot of people who, who, were, who, were, wanted, who were for the war on terrorism. You know, I, I think now the length and the, and the direction and the, and the cost of how long the war and all that stuff has taken, now that's got people kind of irritated and, and tired of it. But – for the the general the general battle cry, I think people were behind. Like I said, like I was saying, I think it's the public opinion. You have the internet, you have all these new technology, where people are able to see the atrocities that come with war. You know the things that happen to and, and the Revolutionary War, and the Civil War. There was no such thing as cell phones or the internet. You couldn't see, you couldn't Google what happened in the you know. So you don't think what that happened people in the, in the Civil War knew what was going on in the war? They don't. They didn't know the reality of wars back then because they oh, didn't they, have social media. They no, they did, but. The people in Japan didn't know didn't know the reality of the Civil War. The people but they in, knew the, the reality of their own war. Wouldn't you argue? Hold on, hold on. I feel like we're getting away from the overall <laughs> argument we're trying to make. So well, I'm just what I'm trying to say is the reason that that you know that, that it's, it's trying to hush. You know, there's not more direct war as we we were talking about is because of people's you know because of public opinion. It's not as acceptable. It's not be, and the reason when I mean acceptable, I mean that more people know about. it. I'm not saying that people like you know choose war and like war, we love killing, that kind of thing. I'm saying that their understanding of it is more. They're able to see pictures of, of what happened. They're able to see, you know, videos 
and of, of the Holocaust and that kind of thing, the things that come from war. So, so maybe governments find it more beneficial to fight war on a smaller scale in a sort of shadow war type of thing. You see a whole lot more of that in the direct conflict. Well, that's true. That's the, the, the whole shadow war system wouldn't necessarily come just from like a public opinion on war. Because as I said, I believe that the public opinion on war has always been negative minus in. But for democracies, the public opinion of what gov how governments handle conflicts is pretty important. I mean, in demo democratic governments, the, the government, you know, if you what determines whether you hold office is public opinion and whether what they find out, you know, determines whether you get elected again. So. I think public opinion is pretty relevant for democratic governments, especially one like the United States. Public opinion is definitely relevant for um, the U.S. government, but what I'm saying is that so the public opinion of war is negative, but it has been negative for a long time, minus these moments of intense um, provocation like Pearl Harbor or 9-11. Those are just two very specific moments in which thousands of U.S. citizens were killed. So, and, But in general, without some intense attack on U.S. homeland, the public does not support war. But what does change and what has changed from 1930 to 2018 is the dynamics within the international system. Before, the U.S. was extremely isolationist, which I mean, we still do have a lot of those same tendencies. But as a whole, the international system has become a lot more intertwined. They've moved away from war because they saw the massive casualties of World War II and the cost of World War II. And so now they have all these treaties and this intertwinement. They can't act in the same way that they did. Like aggression is no longer, aggression to the extent of invading new countries is no longer allowed. That's why you don't see major state actors going into other countries. It's non-state actors who are the main people and all these, the main motivators in all these conflict. And all that they have is support from states, but the states aren't the, the main actors motivating conflict now. It's, it's people like ISIL and, and other organizations. Okay, so we basically settled on the idea of shadow war, sort of low-key war. You know, it's going on, but it's not officially going on. And I want to take that and I want to apply it to our initial overall topic of NATO and what that means between for the relationship between members of NATO. Because you're talking about, for shadow war, you're talking about entities that represent interests that aren't actually like official state interests. They're more private interests. You, you know, it, the general public doesn't have an interest always in, or doesn't directly have an interest in what goes on in the Middle East. But for- That they know. That they know, that or can really, Put see together, their, see in their everyday lives. Yeah, and at the time, you know that the determine the what determines whether that event could impact the life of an American is really made in the moment. You know, so this idea of shadow war, this idea of war rising to a level that basically means it's between non-state entity, the disintegration of borders and the creation of something else, countries in a different con conception. Because ultimately what brings these resources into these countries is this sort of financial capital, these, these big organizations. Groups of people, yeah. more so than countries. Yeah, so how does this, what does this mean for NATO? An organization like NATO that was built upon state allegiance, state war, interstate war, to fight the Cold War, to fight the Russians. 
Well, the Soviet Union that no longer exists, we're now facing non-state entities, non-governmental organizations, big corporations. Well, one thing I'd like to point out is that even though the Soviet Union is no longer there, is no longer is no longer a thing, Russia still is. And as long as Russia is a thing, they're they're going to have a strong, they're going to they're going to put a lot of the resources into their military. And in turn, they're going to do things to to the, their surrounding borders and 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 a chance and a and a deterrence of, of and a want to to get back, you know, the old mother Russia, how of and bring it back to the top where it used to. Be. Do so, you really think that's their goal? Do you think that's Putin's ultimate uh, incentive? If that if not, then why is he sending unmarked uh, Russian troops into where where's what was that into um, Crimea? Yeah, into yeah into Crimea. Um, <clears throat> And and it's and 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 saying how these are these are Russian speaking people that that want to be a part of Russia yet and so but well I, I want to point I want to draw attention to the fact that there were a lot of Russian speaking people in that region and really Crimea was kind of an isolated incident I mean the Crimea was economically important it had economically important ports there mm-hmm. and we all know that Russia is suffering economically mm-hmm. because of sanctions placed on it by the West so. I don't see that as trying to restore the old Soviet Union. I really see that as a window of opportunity. Well, what's going to keep Russia from exploiting other windows of opportunity? There's been talk about, you know, about Putin. He says he, now that he's got these these weapons that any anti-ballistic missile that the West has can't can affect it. I call bullshit, but still, what if he did? You know, we didn't think that Kim Jong-un had nuclear weapons. He just doesn't have a missile that can get it over here. Or so we know. So we know. You know, exact. So... What's to keep him from not having it in the future? You know, I know Poland, they feel threatened over there. You know, Lithuania, Leto, Leto, whatever the heck they're called. Let, <laughs> what are you trying to say? L-A-T-I-V-A. Uh, Latvia. Yeah, Latvia. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they, yeah, they feel the same. No idea Regardless of the country, they, they feel the same way. <clears throat> and so as long as they're that feeling of that fear. But, but what would Putin have the gain of taking Latvia or Lithuania or Poland? What did he have? What did he have to gain the first time that the Soviet Union was there? Well, it was a completely they, different well, they, leader. You, what, what they well, what they had to gain is is a what they had to gain is a loss of of, of NATO. Is the loss of NATO? Well, is it the loss of the of the, the West influence? The defeat of NATO. The defe- well, yes. The ultimate dissolution of NATO. Or the, the 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 lack of power. If you take away NATO countries, then obviously they're not going to have the power from that country towards their organization. If they're by they're but they, ultimately, the defeat, create... the defeat of a country in who's a member of NATO would mean the dissolution of NATO if, if those countries didn't come to its aid. So you're suggesting that Russia wants to see the dissolution of NATO by testing its Article 5. No, I'm not, I'm not right now. Not right now at the moment. But, if they, but what's to say in the future when they when, – say that you know, their economic system turns around, say that you know, their military you know, becomes, becomes greater. They're, they're buying F-22s. They're, they are, you know, they've got these, these anti-ballistic missiles that cannot be stopped by anti-ballistic missiles. They've got this kind of stuff. What's to say that they don't try to test? What's to say that they don't, they don't try to get these, these countries around them to kind of buffer them from the West influence? I would, What's I, to say? I think it's an incredibly interesting point that they could be testing Article 5 because, I mean, while Crimea was a specific incident where they needed, they needed Crimea because their, their economy is in serious downfall right now, um, Others uh, places like Ukraine, they're just they're just trying to reclaim old territory, and they're not even actually putting themselves into this like all-out war. They just have Soviet supporters on the border sending uh, rockets or 
or whatever mortar shells into Ukraine and the U.S. doesn't come to the response. Russia meddles in to U.S. elections, or, or which is not completely proven, but Russia gives the illusion that they're meddling into U.S. elections and the U.S. hasn't really done a whole lot about it. So within the so then Russia is then weakening both NATO, but they're also like showing the U.S. to be a slightly weaker state. So like even if NATO is still an organization and it hasn't completely been dissolved, I mean, you can't count on weaker countries or countries who haven't acted previously. Who's going to who's going to trust those countries? Like who's going to trust the U.S. if the U.S. didn't appropriately reprimand Russia for meddling in their elections? Or who's going to why would Russia be afraid to to go further into or slowly increase their operations in Ukraine if so far they haven't had any real withdrawals from it. So to answer your initial question of what is the purpose of NATO, um, in my in my opinion, I think it is still to corral Russia in a sense of if they're going to build their you know it's the total deterrence of power. If you're going to build your your military, I'm going to build my military type thing. Um, so other than that, I think that. You, non-state actors, you see, you do see NATO soldiers and NATO fighters within the borders of these countries with these these organizations, these non-state actors that are, you know, conducting acts of violence in these in these these different countries. So almost, it's almost, which kind of, you know, it's kind of funny. It's it's almost like a world police in a sense. You know, the world police that we don't that we don't have, but you, most of these these soldiers that you that you see, what other organization is sending is sending these troops that aren't a part of NATO? in every aspect of the world whenever there's these types of conflicts. So are we are we essentially talking about the privatization of war? What do you mean? Uh, the, dis- the, the dissolution of state actors and the rise of private actors. No, I, don't, I would not say that you're seeing private actors. A concentration of capital that dictates state behavior based on common interests held by those in power. That has a very negative connotation when you put it that way. Does it? It does, because what if those state actors who determine what other state actors do, you know, they're not all in agreement. You know, then you have then you have you know your whole your whole sovereignty, you know, topic, which could go we could go for a whole another podcast. Um, but I think that and only time will truly tell. But for the moment, I think it is being used as more of a as more of a deterrence for these non-state actors that are that are that are in an attempt to disrupt you know, the world as we know it. NATO is being used as a deterrent for non-state actors? Yes. Well, how can NATO be used as a deterrent for non-state actors when it's designed to fight state actors? It's designed to fight non-state actors. In what sense? Wait, I think I've re- I think it's designed... What, what did I just say? It's designed <laughs> to fight non-state actors. Yeah, well, it's not designed to fight non-state actors. I think it's evolving to fight non-state actors. In the Middle East, you see not you see NATO forces. They, there's, air, there's Air Force bases that, um, that have, you know... French, you know, French Air Force, British Air Force, United States Air Force, you know, all these different, you know, Canadian, you have the Canadians over there. Lord knows what they're doing, but they're over there. Like you have these people that are from different countries that are coming together to fight the war, the type of war that we have today. So were they initially designed for non-state actors? No, they were designed to combat the Soviet Union. But That's how, what they came together for. How effective can an organization be that has not changed any of its plans have not changed really the way it operates it just improvises on day-to-day circumstances i mean hold hold on i i do think that they've evolved the way they fight wars but i want to address i want to address yes i'm not denying the fact that there's been an effort by nato to fight non-state actors there's definitely been 
successful efforts and, you know, failures, but, you know. Which comes with any war. Yeah, and they have certainly adapted to new threats. But I want to talk about the future of NATO. Since we're seeing the dissolution of state actors in terms of uh, enemies, you know, we're not facing the same rivals that we once were. There's no definite bad guys. They live amongst the populace. They're individual, non-governmental organizations. Besides North Korea. Besides North Korea, but if, if you think about North Korea, North Korea is an, it's sort of its own private organization. Like, and how, and how, much, how, much, how much violence have you, have you seen other than North Korean government doing on their own people? Um, how much violence with other countries have you seen? I mean, most intimidation and violence is carried out at the hands of non-governmental actors. Exactly. Nowadays. So, exactly. You know, that you know, like we were talking about, shadow war. So how can NATO, what, what's going to happen with NATO? Would you see that NATO is going to dissolve? Because you're starting to see NATO members turn on one another. You, you see the Iraqi government trying to push the... Well, the Iraqi government isn't a member of NATO, I don't think. No. But um, Turkey's the closest one in the Middle East. No. Yeah, but Turkey's another one. Turkey revealed the locations and a lot of uh, vital intelligence on American bases in the Middle East. So I've got a question. I've got a question. So the act of one of one one member, you think would would jeopardize the the connection and, and the the camaraderie and, and the the trust? It would erode. It would erode all that of all the other. NATO members, you think one one bad apple would would ruin everything that all the others have built up? It, it I don't think it's just one though. I don't think it's just one though. You see, France is scaling down its military. It's starting to cut military spending. Their uh, their head of uh, defense, yeah, their minister of defense minister. resigned because uh, Macron refused. He refused to raise the budget for the French military. He actually cut it by like four hundred million euros or something like that. And um, it might have been, I'm not really entirely sure. I think it was four, $40 million or 400 I don't really remember. But he cut the military budget and the Minister of Defense resigned, essentially. And you see that happening, but you also see Poland, like we discussed. They're taking the threat very seriously. They're militarizing their population. They're starting, they're exercising for the very possible threat of a Ukraine-style attack. And uh, I think that... NATO is bound to dissolve eventually because just like the very idea of states, state actors is going to dissolve. It's going to be private actors and, you know, private sector actors under the guise of state actors. So I've got it. So that's a very interesting point with NATO dissolving. Do you see, what is, what would you say on the issue that, um, what, would there be another, do you think something would take NATO's place? Maybe more of a fracturing of NATO into regional alliances and do you think that that the the other aspects of of an alliance wouldn't keep the nato alliance together not really i think that international relations really exists in a state of uh what can we do best for ourselves and what, so our realist perspective yeah from uh so you're more, you're 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 you'd say you're more of a realist than i than idealist well in that sense but i do acknowledge that humans sometimes act on ideological um motivations so, so do you think that the if nato was to dissolve do you think it would do you think that it, it would it would jeopardize the other aspects of the alliances of their alliances with each other yeah i do because if you can't trust one another there's no credibility to a treaty and an alliance all right well uh i think that uh pretty much wraps up today's conversation 
Uh, we're going to dig more. I want to talk more about the Middle East next time. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked a lot about Ukraine today. But we're going to explore the Syria conflict and what that means for um, Russian-American relations and as, as well as relations between NATO members. So um, I will say this as a closing point. I have heard that the vodka in that region is spectacular. Really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll find out next time um, on Drunk History Edition Part Podcast 2. Two? Hopefully I'll be drunker. Until next time. Until next time. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,